welcome to The Lamp Post in the Woods, the podcast that shines a light on the significance of the greatest stories ever told. From fairy tales to literary classics to the parables of Jesus, these stories have influenced the lives of countless people and still do. Here at The Lamp Post in the Woods, we journey through the great books, dramas, poems, and stories to find what they have to say for our lives today. I'm your host, Dinah Koppel, and joining me in this fellowship are Benjamin Koppel, Jennifer Malik, and Evan Zenobia. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 6. We are very, very excited today, and we have a very, very, very special episode for all of you tonight. For the first time ever, this is a very momentous occasion, because for the first time ever in Lamppost in the Woods history, all three, two and a half seasons, because we're in season three, we have an interview episode for you guys. Yay! And today we are so pleased and so excited and delighted that for our first ever interview episode, we have Dr. Jeremy Painter in the house today, and we are going to be chatting with him. A little bit about Dr. Painter. He works as the general studies program director and the, is an assistant professor of English at Urshan College. He has a doctor of letters from the University of Pretoria, a doctor of ministry from Regent University, and a PhD from Radbid University. So, Dr. Painter. Welcome to the Lamppost in the Woods. Thanks. I'm, I love the name of the of the podcast, by the way. I'm guessing that's <laughs> oh, yeah, a non-reference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. Oh, wait, it is? We, no, we're able to know it. No. <laughs> <laughs> we're able to know it. Very well chosen. Get that reference. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a true Lamppost in the Woods um, connoisseur. Um, so, Dr. Painter, to, to to start us off today, tell us what you've got going. Are you teaching anything this summer? What What's going on right now in your world? Yeah, I'm teaching a couple of summer courses. They're mostly online um, for uh, Lindenwood University and also for uh, UGST, um, Urshan Graduate School of Theology. So, teaching a homiletics class right now. Uh, oh, so wow. class on preaching and and also a um, couple of uh, like English composition classes. So Got that's it. pretty much it. Got it. Yeah. So you're keeping busy then, <laughs> which is always good. <laughs> I, I am. I am. I for right now in life. I'm. Um, I'd like to have. I got into education thinking that summers would be fairly relaxing. But um, it's not the way it's actually working out. To right, exactly. Be, so. all, all of us um, that think that teachers and professors have an easy road during the summer. <laughs> um, we're going to get into our discussion questions, and um, you guys feel free to jump in as as you as you see fit. And we're going to try to glean all the knowledge that we can from Dr. Painter. But Dr. Painter, for our first question, we want to put the question to you that was our very first question that we ever tried to discuss, and episode one of season one of this podcast. So the question we put to you is why literature in the first place, or why should we even read fiction at all? All right. So let me ask uh, a qualifying question. So are you, are you referring to, are you making a distinction between fiction? Um, why should we read a, a fiction or more broadly, why should we read literature at all? 
which I guess or, I was thinking more fiction. Or I, okay. I guess both. However, you want to attack the question, go right ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, um, stories are a kind of a um, a way of rigging the system for life. We have a very short life. Uh, we are but a vapor. Um, leaves of grass so we just last for an hour or so um, we think that uh, a gnat that lives 24 hours has a short life but i don't think that the gnat thinks its life is any shorter than we think our life is um, in the grand scheme of things life is really really short and it's like a train the the uh, longer it goes the faster it goes um, mm. and, uh, just such a short time. And how do we give, um, how do we acquire wisdom in life? We only have so much time and so many people who can talk to us. Um, so stories, especially, you know, somebody, uh, an Ernest Hemingway or a Tolkien or a Lewis, any, any really good writer is going to uh, condense and distill most of their life experiences and all the wisdom that they have at their disposal to tell a story. And usually, uh, uh, whether you're a, a believer or not, usually uh, you're dealing in wisdom. Uh, all literature or fiction literature is typically wisdom literature of some form or another. Um, everything's kind of a morality tale. And so lots and lots of wisdom gets packed into something that we can digest in 10 or 20 hours or 30 hours, or maybe even it, it could be in a half hour. But whatever the case, um, when I open up a story, um, I'm walking into another world. I'm entering into the mind of other people. I'm thinking, especially if I'm opening, opening up older stories, older books, um, through the lives of different cultures, different languages, different assumptions. People have thought differently than I think. Um, so it sort of reduces my blind spots as I go. Um, and it just at a very short, manageable period of time, I'm accessing what might have taken a lifetime for, say, a great thinker or a great heart like uh, C.S. Lewis to acquire. I'm getting that in just a couple of hours. So you, you keep on reading these stories. You keep on essentially acquiring these stories. And um, so I feel like when my kids talk to me or now my grandkids talk to me, they ask me questions. Um, they're not just asking Jeremy Painter. They are asking for answers from Plato and from <laughs> Shakespeare and from Jesus and from Paul and from Moses. They're asking questions from Tolkien. So when I'm giving them answers, it's, it's not just me. I'm, I, I have a, a whole library up here that I can give to other people. So I'm getting just, again, in a very short 
uh, amount of time, uh, lifetimes of experience. And so I, I just, that's invaluable. Um, and that's only one aspect of my answer, but I, it's already been long <laughs> enough. Um, so uh, go on have... ahead. This is great. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, yeah, please, please continue. Right, so, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> so I really, really enjoy, um, good preaching, um, the uh, subject of homiletics and storytelling, um, is part of you typically part of good preaching. Um, and if you're going to be good at anything in life, no matter if you're a preacher or whatever you are, it ought to be at telling stories because everything ends up coming down to stories. We think of life, we process life through stories. Um, our lives are stories. Um, uh, we place ourselves in a story that we perceive was written prior to the time we were born. Um, The story gives us meaning. It makes our lives intelligible. It's the standard by which we judge the rightness or wrongness of our actions and other people's actions. Um, We deliberate on possible uh, decisions or paths that we could take um, based on what we think the plot of the story is that we're in, in life. Um, The story can change, though, so we can, um, we may, may go uh, to bed one night believing that we're in a romance. And then, you know, that by the next time we go to bed, um, it might turn out to be a horror um, or a tragedy. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> or, or if you're a, if you are a, uh, a, a believer, um, life could be a tragedy and you could wake up into a comedy. Um, sure. So life has this kind of story arc to it. In fact, it's stories that are, imitating life. And, um, so, uh, as a, as a preacher, uh, when I'm telling a story, especially if I'm telling it well, what's happening is, um, let's say I'm telling the story. Um, uh, let's say I'm the apostle Paul and I'm telling a story of my conversion to, um, a, a, a pagan ruler. Um, I was on the road to Damascus on my way to defeat this enemy. And then my enemy obstructed me in my path and blinded me. Yeah. Wow. And said, the enemy said to me, uh, why are you persecuting me? It's easier for you to kick against the bricks. You tell this story and then there's a conversion in it. And the mechanics of the story are this way. When you tell the story, the audience that listens sympathizes with the protagonist. We do mm-hmm. that naturally. You don't have to ever be taught that. Um, my two-year-old granddaughter knows this already. She already sympathizes. She knows who to sympathize with immediately. Um, it's part of our, our nature. And we also know who the antagonist is. We have a... Um, uh, a, a desire to see their will thwarted. Um, so when you're telling the pagan ruler the story of mm-hmm. your conversion, your faith or Paul's faith in Christ becomes a kind of surrogate for the pagan ruler's 
faith in Christ. While you're telling the story, he's sympathizing with the hero. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and his heart is set against the enemy. And that's a really valuable thing for like 20 seconds. All of your values are gone. And the storyteller's values are your values and you feel them. Wow. Wow. And so you might feel what it's like to have faith, if only for 15 or 20 seconds. And sometimes that's enough. That's enough. Wow. And lives are changed. Yeah. Um, um, we wake up in the morning thinking we're, we're in a story. And it tells us what to do, who mm -hmm. we are. And then um, when we get to work, uh, somebody's asking us about yesterday, we tell them a story. When we go to lunch, we, we go to lunch based upon a story. Who we're going to invite depends upon the story, the past, our past. Um, when we come home, our wife or our husband is going to ask us, how was your day? And we tell them a story. Mm -hmm. We turn on the news. Somebody turns on a movie. Somebody turns on the TV and they're watching a story. When they're watching a baseball game, they're watching a story. When they go to bed, they dream in stories. Everything's happening in a story. When you sit down for an interview for a job, it whoever's going to get hired is the one that can tell the better story. The story that wow. harmonizes <laughs> companies' um, goals. Right. Um, when nations go to war, it's because it's, it's stories going to war. And, and so I say, you know, I repeat, if you're going to be good at anything in life, no matter what it is, scientist, doctor, storyteller, like a writer, yeah. um, if you're going to be a teacher, if you're going to be a parent, your kids are going to need you to tell them stories so that they can have wisdom and not have to experience everything right. for themselves. Right. So that's, that, that, that's the one and the most, maybe the most valuable thing is telling a story and then hearing stories. Uh, it's how we live. Great. It's, it's how no, it's we true. acquire wisdom. Uh, so Dr. Painter, if I may, um, one of the, the points of this podcast is for us to explore the greatest stories ever told and the classics and, and the greatest stories that are in the world. So uh, my question for you would be, um, what makes a story great? What makes a story a classic? What what qualifies something as a great story, in your opinion? Uh, well, I, I sort of brought that on, I guess, maybe by su suggesting that you ought to be good at telling stories. So how, <laughs> you know, how do you tell a good story? Um, first of all, um, it's something that you, you, you really have to work on. Um, there are, I don't think any born storytellers, it's a lot of trial and error. And I'm telling you what, the best storytellers in my mind are people who externalize. They, the story's not about them. The story's about other people and you trying to imagine other people's lives, their thinking, their, their feelings. And if you have that knack, that habit or discipline of trying to empathize with people, you're probably going to be a better storyteller than a narcissist hmm. um, who can only understand their own story. So there, that, that it's in your, your character, like good storytelling comes actually, it's not just a, 
um, a discipline that you pick up through um, uh, you know studying the subject, but it's it's also it arises out of virtue. It seems to me now that doesn't mean that all great storytellers are virtuous people, but maybe they have had the ability at some point in their life they they have trained themselves to be empathetic. So um, it's always what if, what if um, our, our whole moral imagine our whole moral compass our our moral integrity depends upon our ability to think or imagine. We have to to do unto others as you would have do, done unto you is an act of the imagination. And um, so I think first, a, a, a good character, a character that uh, uh, has the habit of thinking about how other people, how did that affect, how did what I say affect that person? Did I hurt them? Does it, do, do what, does what you say haunt you? After you're done saying it, do you regurgitate things for a long time? I mean, I have been told before, you know, you really need to let some things go. Um, and maybe, maybe it'd be less stressful, but I would also have less time to think about how my, the impact of my words upon people. Could I have said that better? Um, how could I have set up that information? You know, joke telling is a is really good practice. <laughs> Because the order of the information is really important. There shouldn't be a single word that is uttered after the punchline. Not one word. If you have one word beyond the punchline, you failed. Um, <laughs> and everything has to be very, very orderly. Learning lots of fairy tales. like, And, and, and this is the, the main thing right here for me. If you can't tell stories to children that your children enjoy, you're not a good storyteller. So tell children stories. Yeah. And like if you're preaching or you're teaching, aim for an audience that children and adults can enjoy together. Right. I mean, when you're, when you're, you're, you're taking in Narnia, this yeah. is children and adults. They're both enjoying it. That's masterful. Yeah. The language that you use, a, 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 anybody can make a, Simple things sound complex, but it takes real intelligence to make a complex thing sound simple. And that's the, that's the, the, like, for instance, I do this all the time because I don't, I don't know how much we think about this, but this is really important for me. Here's the greatest theological formula, the deepest, the most profound theological height. This what I'm about to say is what made Christian iconographers over the last 20 centuries depict its author as an eagle because it sees things that no one else sees. And listen to the language he uses to, to utter this most profound of all theologies. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness comprehends it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Okay, I just uttered 88 words. All but four of them were monosyllabic. They were one syllable words. Words wow. that children learn when they're two. 
So um, using language that people, that children understand. Um, and, and because of the simplicity of John 1, because of that simplicity, it allows children to understand something of it. But you, as an adult, even as an old man, you, you suspect that you still haven't even scratched the surface of the meaning. So somehow it's accessible to children and the most wizened men and women still think they have miles to go with this. That's if you can use simple language. So I think good storytelling is storytelling that's aimed for children to enjoy and for adults to find something profound. I can, I can say a word or two about, uh, okay, open up Shakespeare, read Hamlet and uh-huh. you're lost. <laughs> um, well, it's not just me. <laughs> all right. So, so you're, you're lost. Uh, here's, here's, um, here's Horatio saying, um, but lo, look, there's the, the dawn on ha- on yon high Easter eastward hill walking in russet mantle clad. What? In the world. He's describing a sunrise. In metaphor, russet mantle, that is, he's wearing a red garment, walking down, the sun is walking down like a man dressed in red, down the eastward hill. Okay. That takes a little bit of initiation. But it didn't in its day. Because the language of Shakespeare is Elizabethan. He is speaking to people who are paying a haypenny. To, to watch the play. That is, the poorest of the poor are coming in. They're illiterate and they perfectly understand Shakespeare. So it's just, it's, it, it, it's initiation for us. But even Shakespeare doesn't evade this rule. He could be very, very subtle and complex. But a child watching the play, especially in Elizabethan England, England is still able to understand the, the, the mechanics of what in the world's going on with Macbeth. Um, so, <laughs> That's so cool. Um, I, I, think, I think writers that try to be subtle and try to be mm-hmm. complex, I'm done. I, I don't, you know, uh, you're too self-conscious. Tell yeah. a story. Enter into other people's experience. Um, I, I think those are the stories worth telling. There are a few exceptions to that rule, but those are the exceptions, not the rule, I think. And those simple ones, it seems like those are the ones that keep getting told over and over again, right? Like we've talked about that multiple times on the podcast about how like there's some stories, whether you're looking at like, hero's myth, like the hero's journey, myth, that type of stuff, or even the mm-hmm. arch- archetypal things that people have written and, um, you know, that even Tolkien gets into or whatever. It's like these stories keep getting told over and over again and people... I don't know. It's like, yeah, don't try to be complex. Just tell the stories that work. You know, there's some stories that have been around for thousands and thousands of years and and they work. That's such a good point. Hamlet was not a story that Shakespeare invented. It was, Mm -hmm. it was a story that was written in a historical um, chronicle called Saxo uh, by a, a, a compiler named Saxo Grammaticus in the 11th century. And it was told and told and told and told. And there are horrible versions of Hamlet out there before Shakespeare. Um, he, he didn't tell new stories. We can't find any story that he told that was new. He was taking stories that he had heard from abroad and retelling them. Um, 
The only thing that's really, I think, unique about, say, like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is like 50 stories, 50 classic stories. And and what's unique about Tolkien is the specific, it's the stew. It's what's in the pot. Um, none of the elements are unique. It's the combination of the individual mm-hmm. elements together that makes the story unique. So people that are pursuing novelty and originality and storytelling, you're going the wrong direction. There are you, you, there are only a couple of stories that you can tell, only a couple, and uh, they've already been told. What's going to be unique about your story is your unique combination of stories. I think, yeah, absolutely. Well, you started talking a little bit about Lord of the Rings, and we know that you're a Tolkien expert. So let's let's <laughs> delve a little bit into that. When a lot of people look at the Lord of the Rings, maybe they look at it at face value, or they can just think it's, oh, it's just another fantasy. It's like all the other fantasies out there. We, of course, on this podcast, and I'm hoping you too, Dr. Painter, think, would think that it's more than that. So I guess my question is, is Lord of the Rings more than just a fantasy story? Um, and, you know, why is it more than just fantasy? <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, I actually grew up uh, hearing a lot of negativity about Lord of the Rings and uh, yeah. also the Narnia series. Um, so, so much so that when I was a teenager, it came as a great shock to me to hear that they were both devout Christians, Lewis and Tolkien. Right. I, I had no idea. <laughs> I thought they were warlock from, you know, reputation. <laughs> Um, so, um, yeah, so, so first of all, uh, there are a couple of things that, that, that Tolkien, you know, really kind of co-opted, appropriated from his, um, his Christian beliefs that were so fundamental to his artistic credo. Um, that they informed everything that he was doing and were the goal towards which he was working. Um, one of those ideas that he appropriates from his, his, his Christian understanding is the idea of sub-creation. And I'll get into that in a second. And secondly, the um, idea of uh, what he called, and it's a, a term he coined, eucatastrophe. Hmm. And uh, any 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 of you uh, familiar with either of these terms? I, I don't want to over-explain. Okay, I'm not familiar. Uh, <laughs> okay. Dinah would be happy for a refresher. <laughs> Jen would too. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. How you much are you us? charging for this credit <laughs> hour? That's what I want to know. Um. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well. Uh, when I talk about something I love this much, it's um, I, I I would be uh, willing to pay you almost. Uh, this is you know. so sub creation. Um. Uh, so Tolkien takes from Genesis one and John one the idea that the world 
is made out of words. Our world. That it's 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 uttermost. Um, it's uttermost. Uh, it's innermost essence. Creation's essence is the word of God. God said, let there be light. And then in the beginning was the word. Um, so, um, so the table that I'm sitting at, beneath and under the cells, the atoms, the subatomic level, the quarks, beneath all of that, Underlying everything, as the author of Hebrews says, chapter 1 of Hebrews, underlying all of that is the word of God upholding all things. It's the, it's the, it's the most essential component of the universe. It's a word that was spoken. It, it, uh, everything is, is, uh, consists of, um, at some level, the word of God. Um, and, and Tolkien was quite serious about this. Um, this was not just a neat theological observation um, or quirk of the Bible for him. Um, it was something that he himself experienced the magic of all the time whenever he listened to a story or he read a story. Um, whenever you're listening to a story, I, I mentioned how, how we are like born, we're not born storytellers, but we're stor mm -hmm. born story hearers. So, so we already have the, we already have the soft, the hardware. We're born with the hardware for hearing stories and interpreting. And, um, so, so, uh, when you listen to the story, um, uh, the house that the storyteller describes becomes more real to the listener or the reader than the very house in which the reader sits. Mm. It's more substantive. Um, uh, and uh, this is a great mystery. It's, 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 it's a great mystery. It's in the truest sense of the word, an enchantment that happens. And it happens in story. And Tolkien felt that the world was at its core enchanted. It was enchanted by the word of God. So mm. um, he sets about, Tolkien sets about trying to recreate that idea in his own story world. So in the Silmarillion, which precedes Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. the Silmarillion begins with a creation myth. The god Eru. Um, creating these um, Valar. These are like sons of God. And they are tasked, according to their abilities, their talents, their God-given talents, they're, they're tasked with creating the rest of the world um, or the, the rest of the universe. And uh, so at the back of Lord of the Rings, which is just one branch off of a much larger mythology or world that he's created a universe. Um, there is this idea of, 
of creation being spoken into existence. And so he's just really, Tolkien's really, really conscious of this idea that he, as a storyteller, it, this is how we are made in the image of God. Mm. That we, we are acting in the image of God most, not just merely when we love, when we forgive, when we have mercy, when we have compassion, but also when we tell stories, when we make worlds out of our words. We are in some way replicating, or at least on a microcosmic cosmic level, uh, what God has done at, at the universal level. So it is our act of imaging God. He took that really, really seriously. And I think that accounts for a lot of the enchantment. Of um, he's, not, he's not cynical. He's not jaded about words. He's not jaded about creation. Um, so he's, his, his, if you believe that your words and your storytelling is an act of imitation of God's storytelling, you're, there's much more substance to the words you're using. There's much more intentionality wow. in the way you're using words and the way you're building mm-hmm. the world. And so Tolkien builds stuff into his worlds that nobody else would care about. Yeah. One bombadil, <laughs> everyone wants to go past, except for really, <laughs> there to, it is. really, right. Tolkien lover. <laughs> Yeah. Nate, I skimmed Tom Bombadil. I totally skimmed Tom Bombadil. <laughs> okay. All right. So he has no effect on the plot. In fact, yeah. he's an obstruction to the plot and endangers the entire story. He destabilizes yes. it because he has the power to take the ring and destroy mm-hmm. it. Why in the world would you bring, you're writing yourself into a corner. Don't wow. do that. But because it, it, see, a Tolkien thought, my job is not just, it's not to just invent, but it's to discover things that are already there. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So Tom Bombadil has an existence apart from just this act of me picking up a pen and writing, you know, what's on the top of my head. He, in some sense, believes that it exists already and he's writing it into existence uh, or rather not writing it into existence, but writing up a path to discovery of something like a block of marble. You, where's Michelangelo's David in there? Mm. It's not by an act of creating David. It's chipping away everything else around it until David emerges. And that's how you know great art really really happens it already has some kind of metaphysical existence and your your job is to um find it okay first of all second of all um i'm thinking of the um the uh the great architecture engineer of the ancient world the greatest really uh that we know of phidias who built the parthenon um in the um early uh, 1800s, I believe it was, or late 1700s, one of the, one of the two. Um, well, two, uh, 2,400 years ago, Phidias had sculpted these beautiful, um, uh, scenes of the gods at the top of the Parthenon, where it was very difficult to see. You would have to get on a scaffold and climb way up there to see the great, delicate features that the, this master architect had designed. So very few people would have access to it already. 
but then the greatest discovery of all was when um, uh, Athens was attacked by the Venetians, part of the Parthenon was destroyed, and some of those pediments from the top on top of the Parthenon came tumbling down, and people uh, from Athens came around to try to uh, preserve what they could, and they noticed this is the first time in history that anybody had seen the back of these sculptures that Phidias had sculpted mm-hmm. so many centuries ago. And he had made the backs of these sculptures even more delicately and with greater subtlety, greater complexity than he had the front. Mm-hmm. In other words, he, he made something for no eye to see except the gods. Wow. It was for the gods. Alone. Um, there's this, this idea of the reality of the art that, and, and I, and I'm, I'm, I'm drawing to a close. I'm sorry. Uh, almost at all. Right <laughs> it's okay. Here. This is awesome. <laughs> so, I'm telling you, 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 you wind me up and it's just really bad. Musicians, You're going to have to edit this. <laughs> oh, so, uh, so Tolkien has, he has these like, okay, here's a phrase from Tolkien and I'm just, I'm paraphrasing. This is just off the top of my memory and I can't remember the exact circumstances, <clears throat> but some event occurs outside of a forest, right on the edge of a forest, some great event. And, um, the, the scene is about the, the narrator's about to move to the next scene, but before he does, he has one last line. And that is the, um, I forget which animals he names, but they're animals. Let's call them maybe, uh, squirrels, raccoons, something, um, I guess it wouldn't have been raccoons. That's an American animal. And that would have been blasphemy for <laughs> Tolkien um, to use, use a, a Native American word. Um, so anyway, squirrels, the squirrels <laughs> saw what happened. And for many, many hundreds of generations, the rumor of this event passed from generation to generation. The story that had just taken place outside that, so you get this, he's, he's painting off the edge of the canvas there, drawing your attention to something that he'll never discuss. In other words, there's a life, there's a life in this story that exists apart from your reading it or even his writing it. That, that's, that's what happens when you mm-hmm. take seriously the idea of a writer as a sub creator acting yeah. in the image wow. of God by writing a story. That's why he can make people dream. Mm. That's why. Second of all, you catastrophe this much shorter. So if you think about a catastrophe in life, it's all the worst things that could happen to you, say, in one hour. Job, one messenger says, "Um, your children are dead. Another messenger, or sorry, I went in reverse order. um, All your cattle, all your wealth is gone, and all your children are gone. And so you have three messengers in quick succession and Job doesn't have legs left to stand on by the time the third messenger arrives. He's sitting in an ash heap. Um, All the worst things that can happen to you. Imagine the very worst things that could happen to you right now. Your phone goes off, you know, text messages. What would be the worst thing that you could see on that screen? It's the kind of thing that changes your entire future. 
and takes it, maybe even takes it away. Uh, a future of loneliness, isolation, sorrow. That's catastrophe. <clears throat> but uh, Tolkien coined a term, you catastrophe, and it's spelled catastrophe, but the prefix is EU, which in English, it's borrowed from the Greek. Mm means well or good the opposite of it's something that's good mm. uh, by the way um, gospel or evangelion is actually you eu angelion we just the you becomes mm. a v phonetically uh, because it's followed by a thou um, so it's you angelion it's message that is good well message wow you catastrophe. Now imagine something showing up on your phone. That is the best thing. It's the opposite of the catastrophe. It's the best catastrophe. What text mm. message would that be? It completely changes your future. Um, mine changed a couple of uh, weeks ago. Um, my my uh, daughter-in-law is expecting a third grandchild. I mean, that's another you catastrophe mm -hmm. in, in my life. That's, that changes my whole future. I don't know what's out there, but 30, 40, 50 years, if God wills, that person will be, that child will be by my side when I die. It will mean everything to me. It's not even in my life yet, but you catastrophe. And this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It's the best of all possible worlds possible it's world. something it's showing, something up, on showing up on your phone it completely, it completely changes changes your future it gives you a future that you didn't that you didn't have it saves you from something and tolkien when he wrote lord of the rings as well as hobbit but especially lord of the rings where he's very conscious of this idea of you catastrophe he was writing towards that end um, uh, lots and lots of writers today want to end on a sad note, or mysterious, you know, just kind of cut you off in the <laughs> middle so that you seem deep as a writer. You know, you're not naive about life. No, actually you're a cynic. I think you need to <laughs> end your story with a you catastrophe. Mm. Yes. Um, because it's an imitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it reminds them that you catastrophe doesn't just exist in Lord of the Rings, but is actually the nature of our universe. Mm, that so Jesus good. Christ, God incarnate, died for our sins, and then death was defeated. That changes you, everything. Jesus. And if that's true, Amen. If that's true, what do we have to fear? If God be for us, Amen. who can be against us? Mm. Wow. Amen. I don't even know if, what 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 to say what to say after that. It's like there's nothing wrong with with <laughs> the ending line, and they all lived happily ever after. What's wrong with that? You know, people can say it's cliche or it. it's cheesy or whatever, but it. that's Why how the fairy tales would end. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, people say people say that's what is fake. It with people? And he lives false. happily till the end of his days. What is it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then he and then that was a mistake. He found out because because. <laughs> uh, Lord of the Rings really complicates the end of Bilbo's life, but 
It's true. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So, so let me, let me ask one question before you, you know, before um, I turn over the microphone, I guess, to the musicians. Um, <laughs> oh, this is, so, this is great. <laughs> what if, okay, say Albert Camus, the great French short story writer who always liked to end his stories negatively, you know, Cormac McCarthy, every now and then, like on the road, there's something, there's a kind of a, a little glimmer of light. Um, and maybe even No Country for Old Men, there's a little bit of a light at the end. Uh, but for the most part, it's doom. It's darkness. It's darkness. If, if, if Cormac McCarthy had written John chapter one, it would say, the light shineth in darkness, but the light had no chance. That's, that's, that's modern that's oftentimes modern literature right there. Mm. And, and the, the reason why the writer does that is because he feels like he's being more true to life. But if you're a Christian and you believe that the, the truth about life is not darkness, but light, that darkness has no chance against light, that light wins in the end. Who's being more true to life? He lived happily ever after or he went out and shot himself. <laughs> I think that's the naive ending, the darkness. Yep. It's true. <laughs> you just encapsulated it all. <laughs> My question was, what's the deal with Tom Bombadil? So I really appreciate that we... Uh, Took that route. That's why um, we're doing this podcast just for that question yeah, that Evan had. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I I love that. Well, and I think what's amazing is looking at looking at Tolkien and looking at the way that Scripture, especially like Genesis, is written and is this poetic. Is it feels like the author allows to it has allowed a space to keep something for themselves, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think there's something special about that with our own stories is that there's something that we get to keep for ourselves and we get to reflect on those things and we don't have to share it all and we don't have to you know show our hand there there can be some things that are kept close to us and they Phidias, for god's eyes only yeah 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 <laughs> there you go that's good yeah I was going to say, too, when you were talking about the enchantment and, you know, with Tolkien's writing, it reminded me a lot of one of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis, um, which is he just says he does not despise real woods because he has read of enchanted woods. The reading makes all real woods a little enchanted. And I love that quote because just as you were talking about that, like you're reading this book and the story itself becomes more real than the world you're in. But then you enter your world with this enchantment. And yeah. you, I think we get to see the world through God's eyes a little more. And stories introduce us to that. Oh, that's so good. I love that quote right there. And Lewis has something similar, or Tolkien, when he, he's, he talks about like the color green. Um, that's the... Um, the wizards, uh, a writer has the wizard's power when he uses, you know, he says that some, that a, a, a door is green. Um, you just, you just enchanted the door. You just said bibbidi bobbidi blue and the door is green. Mm -hmm. 
in, in people's minds. It's yeah. <laughs> great. Awesome That's stuff. Awesome. It's great. We know on this podcast, Dr. Painter, we talk a lot about, you know, what are the greatest stories ever told? And of course, we know that the Bible, the word of God is the greatest story ever told. But if you had to choose, because, you know, on this podcast, we talk about what are the greatest stories, you know, that we read and how can they affect us? Um, So in your opinion, other than the Bible, of course, what do you think is the greatest story ever told? Other than the Bible. It's a hard question, I know. Did you say that? Other than the Bible. Yeah, can't yeah, this can't be any story yes. in the Bible. Yeah, yeah not the Bible. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say Lord of the Rings, I but I, it's a candidate. It's a candidate. Um and I'll okay. tell you why. Fair enough. <laughs> and it, he, okay. It's, it's just a fantastic story and has so often made me um it has awakened what has sometimes died in me or fallen asleep that is the yearning this yearning that no um nothing really in this world can quite satisfy um and stories that can do that um awakens a, a yearning for god and this is that's what happens i remember one time i was i was dealing with a a 17 year old student um, this wasn't at a, a Christian school Christian college 17 um, year old you know very gifted in college early and everything and but it also lost her faith and she um, she told me and she's reflecting back upon this time she told me that um, her mother had gotten really upset at her about her loss of faith and Mm -hmm. she she was reading lord of the rings at the time um that some bad things were happening in her life and it led to her losing her faith and and her mom said what do you believe in then and she grabbed the lord of the rings and she said i believe in this wow And I understand that. I thought that was, I wondered, is that blasphemy or is that something else? Mm-hmm. And the more I've thought about it, I think about that a lot. The more I think about that, again, I think this st- story was serving as a surrogate, a bridge over troubled, troubled water, something that was, that was preserving her faith. It was, the, it was that um, preserving power until life changed. It was keeping her ability to believe in something better alive. And I, so the Lord of the Rings does that, does that awfully well. Um, I, I, I I think you were wanting to ask me, you know, what are, how did the faith of Tolkien inform his work? Um, Yeah. Go go into that, please. Okay. Really, really quickly. I, I've, I've already given a couple of components, but just think about the story's plot itself. And, and here's one element of it. Um, when Frodo stands at the precipice of Mount Doom, about to throw the ring away, but then 
we find out that he's gone as far as um, his hobbit virtue can carry him. Um, he cannot destroy the ring. He doesn't have the strength to. It's stronger than he is, finally. He has worked his way through ogres, orcs, goblins, wizards, time and space, jealousy, envy, Gollum. He's gone mm-hmm. as he's gone through all of those, but what he couldn't defeat was himself. He 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 was too he was not strong enough, finally. This was as strong as anybody could be, but it wasn't enough. And he's about to um put the ring on and repeat the the error of his seal door. Mm-hmm. And the whole cycle's coming again again. Um evil's going to be put back on life support. Um out from the shadows comes Gollum. And he takes off the ring, bites off the finger, falls into the fire, dies, and the ring is destroyed. And you think you think about the the actual process right there of what just happened. Think about it in terms of Jesus' uh, beatitudes. One of Jesus' beatitudes is expressed right here, and Tolkien meant to express it. He meant to make it as obvious as anything. I mean, besides the fact that the uh, fellowship begins its venture from Rivendell on December 25th in, 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 um, in Middle Earth, December 25th, and uh, the ring is destroyed on March 25th, Easter. This mm. is the most obvious reference to the Christian scriptures. Mm-hmm. This moment, Gollum. Wow. How was Gollum there? How was Gollum there? He was at the knife's edge earlier on in the story. He was about to be killed by Sam. Eliminated. And Frodo, like Bilbo before him, had mercy, Mm. pity Mm. upon Gollum. And if they had not... There would not have been that mercy there for them in the end. So blessed are the merciful, Mm. for they shall obtain mercy. It was an expression of that. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow you. Follow you. Mm. All the days of your life. Um, So this is the kind of thing only a an imagination created by the Christian creed hmm. can create. So in this sense, right. great story. It imitates scripture. Next to that would be Dante's uh, divine comedy in my, in my estimation. Mm. I've already spent too much time on, on Lord of the Rings <laughs> to go into that. But, <laughs> Never um, too much time on Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, divine comedy. That's beautiful. Dig into it someday. Um, if you haven't already. I, we I just have a but quick question, just hearing you talk about all this. I mean, we could go on for hours and hours, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I want to take a course and everything, you know, but I think one thing I want to ask too, are what are resources that you've read, you know, whether it's about Tolkien or Lewis or whomever that's helped shape your understanding of faith in stories 
and something that you draw from in talking about these stories and writers? Oh, um, you know what? Lewis was, was kind of, uh, C.S. Lewis was my, um, the portal into a, uh, uh, the literary world. Um, so, and, uh, C.S. Lewis is a Platonist. He's a Christian Platonist. So, um, <laughs> I had read everything that C.S. Lewis ever wrote several times, I think, before I ever really seriously studied Plato. But then I found out that I didn't need to study Plato because I had already studied Lewis and he had already taught me how to think through mm. a kind of Christian uh, Platonism. Um, so he's just really valuable that way. Um, he teaches you very well how to read. Um, I also really enjoyed Northrop Fry, who was a mm. great uh Canadian um, literary scholar, 1960s and 70s. He wrote The Anatomy of Criticism. Hmm. Um, so uh, that's literary criticism. Uh, so he's kind of Jungian in his approach, which is uh, kind of a modified form of Platonism, it seems to me. Um, uh, so Northrop Fry, C.S. Lewis, my favorite writer of all time, is is without a doubt, it's... Um, uh, uh, it's G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton's orthodoxy um, was like it was like a I don't know. I, when I was a kid, I, I I watched a cartoon called Inspector Gadget, and he always had a gadget <laughs> that got him out of everything. And G.K. Chesterton's work, especially his the attitude that is expressed in orthodoxy um, is uh, applicable to almost all of all areas of life. Uh, so I, I would, I would really get to know uh, Chesterton who was a great, wonderful Christian. Um, in fact, I'm uh, nobody I would like to meet outside of the apostle Paul and hmm. Christ himself, of course, but, but GK <laughs> Chesterton in glory. Um, wow. Yeah. So get to know him a little bit if you don't already. That's awesome. Nice. Awesome. It's great. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Painter, for your time. This has been wonderful. How we always end the show is we do what we call our final words, or our last words, or we all just get to say like our, a closing statement, maybe what, you know, the, the importance of the discussion was, or just our concluding thoughts. So if you'll do that for us, just whatever you feel to say, just give us your last, your final words for the discussion. Me or others? Oh yeah. Y you first. We want to hear your knowledge today. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, We're soaking in all the things that you're saying. Well, I, I'm just, I'm just really thrilled that, you know, that folks younger than me um, are, disinterested uh, apostolics are disinterested in mm. this discussion this this i mean you guys were listening to what i was saying and 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 interested in it and um i don't take that for granted um that takes i mean you have had what i love about it is at one time in in one sense um 
our tradition hasn't always been super friendly to literature outside scripture. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. However, I've seen that. However, it has also brought you all to this place where you can appreciate these things. So it's kind of created in you sensibilities that can appreciate this, you know, this kind of discussions, love of literature. And so I'm just, uh, I think my tradition, your tradition has actually uh, assisted me as a reader um, because we were so word centric as children, Mm -hmm. Uh, story centric. The gospel was a story. Everything we were listening to stories from preachers over and over again. And I think it made us really good, potentially good or great, even um, potential literary critics and um, uh, very good at maybe writing stories, telling stories, and then also listening to stories. So I'm really, really proud, proud of you all. And so glad that you're doing this. Well, thank you. That means so much. And uh, I I know we said final words, but a a bonus question. It's just a bonus question. And I think I might know the answer to this based on the stuff you've spoken so far. But, you know, we love Tolkien. We love Lewis. We talk about the both of them a lot. We talk about how they were friends. Sometimes we even pit them against each other in like a friendly way. So if you had to choose, Dr. Painter, if you had to choose, I know it's difficult, Tolkien or Lewis, which one would you choose? Oh, that's sort of like picking be, be, uh, your favorite kid. Um, your favorite <laughs> I know it's hard. <laughs> your favorite parent. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. If, if I could, if I could cheat and say, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I, I think I think that uh, Lewis is a teacher, and Tolkien is a preacher, uh, and huh. both hmm. together complementary. Um, uh, Tolkien announces the gospel. Um, he's like Jesus in the sense that tells stories. Uh, a certain man had two sons, or a sower went forth to sow. Um, he's, he's just really good at, at preaching the gospel, and it's the gospel is kind of subtext. And Lewis mm-hmm. is just a, a master teacher. Um, his 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 um, his ability to break something down and make you see the treasure of your own faith um, mm-hmm. and shine a light upon it. Um, I, I think it's almost unparalleled in the in modern times. Preacher teacher. That I never thought of it like that before, but that's that's great. <laughs> that's great. Awesome. Well, this has you? been I'm, so wonderful, Doctor Painter. Oh, 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 you're, oh, you're going to make us, oh, I wasn't ready to answer this question. Oh my goodness. Um, okay, oh, yeah, well, if I have to do it, the rest what, of you guys, what, we got to do it. You... <laughs> yeah. Oh, if I had to just like, you know, like not, had to make a decision, not thinking about it, I would say Lewis, because he's had the most formative, maybe, um, uh, effect on my life, like growing up with reading all with reading Chronicles of Narnia and Tolkien, I didn't start to appreciate until I was a little bit older. So, because of that, I'm going to say Lewis. But the rest of us, uh, Evan, what would okay. you say? It's Tolkien for me, um, just because every there are so many different things that I 
take part in with whether it be popular culture or or themes and i see nothing but like lord of the rings started these journeys for so many different cultural phenoms and i'm like i just i can't discount that like he has written whether or not people understand they're interacting with tolkien's work like in different different modes and methods and like he's everywhere and i get to see that because i'm familiar with his work more so Mm. and so i think it's for me it's tolkien that's that's a really good point his cultural footprint is remarkable in fact if you if you want to think about it that way lewis is is one of his products too because yeah. yep. uh, uh, Tolkien Good won time. Lewis to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I get it. Okay, Jen, what about you? My, If I had to choose, it would be Lewis. And just like your student who had said when, you know, at 17, struggling in faith, but saying this is real to me, that's what Lewis was for me when I was struggling in my faith. And... I went to Lewis and he really helped me and shaped who I am as a person, as a writer, as, as so many different things. So I, I often even say Lewis helped rescue me um, in a way. So I have to choose Lewis, but I do love Tolkien too. So <laughs> it's a hard question. <laughs> okay, Benjamin. Well, I, I feel compelled to, you know, uh, side with Evan and make this even so there's no conclusion on this. Boys versus girls um, again. It's coming yeah. back. But, but always. I, I think I need to say, I think I need to say that today I like Tolkien better and like I prefer Tolkien's writing and what he's created. But I think that uh, I would not have understood or appreciated Tolkien if I hadn't read C.S. Lewis first. Mm. Um, I think, I think, I think there's a way that Lewis writes and presents his, his, his ideas and his storytelling that I, that was made Lord of the Rings more accessible for me. So while I'll go with Tolkien, I, I kind of have to side with Dr. Painter as well and say they complement each other in such mm-hmm. a way that it's hard to, it's hard to, to, to choose between them. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well I love it. This is good. All right. Well, again, thank you so much, Dr. Painter, for your time. This has been wonderful tonight. All right, It's been guys. beautiful, I think. I've learned a this lot. Been wonderful. Yes. Absolutely. We'll just have okay. to schedule the uh, season four um, reappearance at this point. So just be prepared. Um, we'll send a follow-up email right. and uh, get you on for the next, you know, <laughs> nine months time or whatever it is. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But- Thank you, thank okay. you, thank you. Well, this has been great. Thanks so much for the invitation. Glad Absolutely. To Absolutely. You have a great rest of your it's evening, sir. Thank you, sir. Oh, you guys, wasn't that awesome? I feel like I'm going to need, I don't know, days and hours to just digest everything that Dr. Painter was saying to us. It, it was that, that was just incredible. That was awesome. So um, this is normally the time where we'd start to transition out, but what we want to do is just give our thoughts and give our final words on what Dr. Painter said. So what did you guys think? Anything that stuck that majorly stuck out to you or what, what are you taking home with you today from what he said? Oh, that's a big question. You really did answer a bunch of my questions that I didn't even ask. And we we (laughs) went there without it. So I thought it was, I thought it was really awesome. I think the the coolest thing for me was there. 
well, there's a ton of cool stuff, but there, when he was at the end, he was talking about like us and how he's thanking us for, for, uh, like caring about this sort of stuff and still, and, and continuing on in this tradition of, of literature and the Bible and stuff like that. And he was talking about how it, it something along the lines of how it makes, it gives a greater appreciation for the Bible and it makes the Bible come even more alive when you, when you read and you look at all these other sorts of uh, uh, stories and things like that. And that's, that's so true for me. You just one quick example is uh, recently I, and this, this is a movie I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark again. And I was struck in that beginning part where like the agents come to Indiana Jones and they want to get, they, they, they're asking about the Ark of the Covenant and he starts telling the story, you know, and he, mm-hmm. and he, and he tells them like, Hey, didn't you go to Sunday school? <laughs> and like, like that point, and then that kind of like, I never noticed it as much. And then it, the rest of the movie, I was thinking the whole time more than I ever have, like about the Sunday school stories about the Ark of the Covenant and the Bible while I was watching that. And like, then when I went, went, went back to reading the Bible and was reading about the Ark of the Covenant, things like that, it really did make it like that mm. much more interesting. Yeah. And I appreciate it. Like, like this, this, this this movie where essentially, you know, the, the Bible is the premise of the movie is the Bible is true. And then, and then they, they obviously it goes way off in these, these weird directions, but it made me appreciate even more. And it was, it was making it come alive again when I was reading it again, thinking of it in this context of, you know, an archeologist, however, you know, 18, 1900 years later studying this stuff. And then in my own life, studying the Bible myself. So, uh, even that's worth the takeaway, I think, is just making the Bible, the more you read outside the Bible and come back, the more it will make the Bible come alive. Right, right. For me, it was like, well, when he was relating, talking about like being a good storyteller and being a good preacher and just about telling stories. And when you tell stories, it makes people feel things. And he used the example of Paul giving his testimony. I can't remember specifically who he was talking about giving it to, but in Acts, you know, we see him give it before like multiple of like the kings or whatever, not even the kings, but like the governors, like the Roman officials. And to be able to tell a story and talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't know God and be able to have them feel what you're feeling and be able to like pass along your burden and what you feel towards them. Like that's just so incredible. And to me, it feels like, yeah, that's no, that's no higher calling than like what we have as, as preachers. So it's like, that's what I'm going to be encouraged to go try to do now, you know? So that was for me. Yeah, I'll just piggyback off that because that was for me too, because as he was talking, I was thinking about why was Jesus the greatest storyteller? And it's Mm. because he would put himself in people's shoes and he would have sympathy with them. You know, he would sympathize with them, empathize with them. Like he would put himself there and in such a way that people listened because they were telling, they weren't, he wasn't telling his story. He was telling their story. And in essence, obviously it is. Jesus's story. But I think for us, like that's so much what we have to do in our lives too, is tell people stories where they can be introduced to Jesus. Like it's telling their story to introduce them to their savior. And to me, like, that's just a takeaway to remind myself whenever I'm telling a story, whether it's in writing or whether it's in spoken word Mm -hmm. to make sure that we're putting ourselves in other people's shoes to what? to introduce them to the light, to the gospel. And when, when he was talking about, you know, the difference between that, a good story and a bad story and a good story that the happily ever after the light that points to eternity and what we're going to get to enjoy one day is just, it just got me excited, you know, and filled me with joy, just Mm. being able to listen to this conversation. Yep. I think it really simplified a lot of things for me when thinking about 
the creative process and the way that we, because we all write, we all uh, tell those stories, whether we're preaching or teaching or like all of us are involved in that process. And it feels like it really simplified right. it for me and put mm-hmm. it into like, I, I, there's something about, I think our, our people that we kind of, um, we epitomize the, the pulpit in some ways. And we go, this is, this is like the greatest thing. And like, it's unobtainable at times. And like, it just felt like, it felt like all of those things were suddenly obtainable the way that he was able to present them and that we can be compelling through simplicity and sincerity and, uh, and through like positivity. That was the other thing that I really loved is he's like, he's shining a light on that like going oh like all of these end positively like all of these are the greatest thing that could happen to you and that's a it's it's not only is it okay to end your story in that way it subverts what modern yeah the catastrophe it's a it's like that's it's a wonderful concept that i think a lot of us get to that i think that's something we can all internalize um just this year like (laughs) it can inform so much about what we do and our actions and what we say so i just i i leave this very encouraged me too this is going to be one that i'm gonna have to listen to again and listeners i think you guys are gonna have to listen to it more than once not because of us because of all the awesome things (laughs) that dr Dr. painter had to say so we definitely we want to have him back on because i know that i mean we talk for i don't know close to an hour and there's Stuff. We didn't even get through all the list of our questions, and I'm sure that there's more stuff that we could have chatted with him about. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today on our quest to find true meaning in our favorite stories. And a big, big thank you to Dr. Jeremy Painter for being our guest on the show today. And it was, again, so wonderful to have him. If you enjoyed today's episode and our conversation with Dr. Painter, please make sure to subscribe to The Lamppost in the Woods and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our intro and outro music is called Missing Piece, and that was composed and performed by Jacob Koppel. Jen, tell the people where they can find us on the social media. You can follow us on Instagram at Lamppost in the Woods. And I'm sure from this episode, I will post quotes on Instagram <laughs> so that you can share with others and really get the word out there about, about this podcast. And we just thank you guys for listening and sharing and always love reading your reviews, love reading your comments. And it really means a lot to us because, you know, we're doing this in our free time, but we do it because we love it. And we hope that you out there in your free time uh, are enjoying it as well. So we just thank you that you guys tune into us every month. Yep. Yep. All right, you guys, we hope that you will join us for our next episode. Benjamin, what are we talking about next time on The Lamppost in the Woods? Our next episode is going to tie in very nicely with with uh, this this conversation we have. It is called entitled "The Greatest Story Ever Told." Now we on our on our podcast we want to read the greatest stories, but the we're going to look at the greatest story ever told. Um, throughout all our episodes, we're, we always touch on the Bible and we're talking about where it interacts with other stories and other books and things we're reading, but. For this one, we're going to take an episode and actually look at the Bible itself as a book, um, as a work of literature, and as a story in itself. So uh, first of many, we're not going to cover the entire Bible in this in this one podcast. <laughs> it's a long but, episode. You know, um, uh, join us and we'll, we'll look at the Bible, the greatest story ever told. Awesome. It'll be a good time. 
Well, listeners, wherever it is that you find yourself on life's journey, we sincerely hope and pray that our lamppost in the woods will help guide you to a more hopeful future. We'll see you next time.